as a church. And if you have a Bible, I would ask that you open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be reading our passage that we're going to be looking at today. If you don't have a Bible... Chapter 9, and as you can see, we will be starting in verse 19. This is what God's Word says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the Being there, but forward. Well, today our series on 1 Corinthians continues with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. So please begin to make your way there if you have a Bible with you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27. That's the address where we'll be spending most of our time together this morning. And as we settle into this passage, I I want to invite you to join me in sort of a mental exercise. To picture a strictly hypothetical situation. We know that after Jesus died and arose from the grave, he made various appearances to people. Not in a dream, not in a vision, but in his very body. And then he ascended on high and is now seated at the right hand of God until his return. But strictly hypothetically, imagine if he was going to make one last appearance on earth before his return. And somehow we knew the exact location would be right here of all places. Chicago, Illinois in the middle of Humboldt Park. And we even knew the day it would be. Just think about that. Imagine the feeling of anticipation as the day was fastly approaching. By this time, word has spread and people from all over are heading to Chicago. If you wanted to get a good spot, you had to get there early. So a lot of churches in the area start camping in the park a few days ahead of time. And with, within no time, the park is filling up. 
Thousands of people are coming and more are on their way. So it's decided that we'll meet here and we'll walk over together as a church family. You can imagine walking down the streets. It's just like walking down California and they're just packed with people headed to the park. A few folks from our congregation who grew up around these parts lead us down some back routes and somehow we end up bypassing the crowd and finding one of the best locations available right out in front. You know who you are. We settle into this incredible spot and that's when it hits you. This is actually happening. You're standing there and Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to be standing in front of you, just a few feet away. The only thing left to do is wait and see. Among the crowd, there's a palpable electricity in the air. Somehow, a mixture of excitement and fear and wonder come together all at once. And it's incredibly deeper than you have ever felt before. This is not the Super Bowl. This is not a U2 concert, as charged as they might be. This is something altogether different, much deeper than emotions. Your soul is literally stirring inside you. Scanning the horizon, there are people pouring in from every direction. And over time, the crowd becomes more and more dense on the inside. The space more and more tight. Every square foot of the park is taken up. All across the lake, it's just filled with these makeshift boats. People standing on them, trying to do whatever they can to see. Soon the crowd spills out into the streets around the park and back into the surrounding area. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And at times we can hear the occasional outburst. That's my spot. I was there first. People vying for their little space. And with several hours to go, we begin to feel drops of rain. And then a few drops give way to a steady cadence and then breaks into a downpour. Looking around, everyone is getting soaked, but no one goes anywhere. We're all just standing in the pouring rain. It lasts for hours and the ground beneath our feet turns into mud, covering our shoes, seeping up our socks. It's a complete mess. Like worse than Riot Fest. But just then, just then, Jesus appears. Not a vision, not a dream. Your eyes behold the Messiah himself. Jesus is there, standing in front of you. And you can't help but shout glory. And everyone around you is shouting praises. But amid these uncontainable shouts, a thought dawns on you. The people on the outside can't see. But then all of a sudden... One by one, people start laying themselves flat on the ground. And each one of us does the same. Face in the mud. In that moment, 
It doesn't matter who got there first. It doesn't matter that the ground is covered in mud. We choose to lay ourselves down so that others can see what we've seen. Pretty soon you can just just picture it. Row after row of people all throughout the park laying on the ground and then people on the outside are able to see Jesus. They see the scars on His hands and His side. They see His resurrection life with their very own eyes. And we hear people for the very first time join the worship of the Lamb who is slain. They cry out, My Lord and my God. Can you picture that? You and I gladly lying on the ground in the mud so that as many people as possible can see our Lord and Savior. Someone once described us something similar to me and the, the Im- imagery has always stuck in my mind. And I want us to keep this in our minds this morning because it serves as a visual reminder for what we will learn in our passage today. Our passage teaches us that this is how we as Christians are to live our entire lives. In essence, we are to lay down so that people can see Jesus. And the point is not showing up at work tomorrow and the first thing you do when you see a coworker is just like hit the ground like face plants. And just like lie there, just waiting. What's going to happen next? As much as I would admire that zeal, it's actually about something far greater. And in the long run, far more difficult. It's about laying down our lives, our whole selves. Laying down our preferences, our plans, our security, our status, our convenience, our comfort. Laying it all down, whatever it takes. It means saying, I don't care the sacrifice. I just want people to see Jesus. To see who He is clearly in the message of the Gospel. That's how He's seen. We lay down our lives. We lay down every secondary concern for this one ultimate concern that people would see Jesus, that the gospel would be heard. And this is a continuation of what we've been learning recently in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians can be broken up into sections. And we're currently in the middle of a section that revolves around this theme We must give up certain things for the spiritual well-being of others. So last week, Aaron Winter spoke on making sacrifices for the sake of other believers, for the body. So this week is similar, only the focus shifts on making sacrifices for the sake of leading others to Christ. Laying down our lives that people might see Jesus. Only what does it look like when we live this way? And in the midst of living this way, what keeps us going? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 27, shows us through the example of the Apostle Paul. 
And sometimes we see the example of Apostle Paul and we're just like, man, that is just something to, wow, admire from afar. But his example is meant for more than inspiration, but imitation. His example in these verses can be broken down into two parts for us to follow. Paul's motto and Paul's model. Motto, model, motto, model. Paul's motto and Paul's model. The first part can be found in verses 19 through 23. We read, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and it's, that I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. These verses explain what could be seen as Paul's motto. It starts with a sweeping statement in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And I think the key expression here is made myself. If you're the type, I would underline that expression in my Bible. Made myself. In other words, he intentionally chose to put on the attitude of a servant. On a human level, Paul was indebted to no one. In that sense, he was independent of everyone. But Paul didn't use his freedom as an excuse to do whatever he wanted to serve his own wishes. He used it to serve the interests of others. For followers of Christ like Paul, freedom means free to serve. We have to wake up in the morning and choose by the power of Christ to put on the attitude of a servant. It's a decision we make. Paul says, I made myself a servant. And then we hear the reason that I might win more of them. The word win occurs five times in these few verses. It's about people being added to the kingdom. People coming to Christ. But what does Paul mean that he wins them? The same way that we might say that a glove catches a ball. All the while, it is the plan and the power of the one behind it. Astonishingly, God chooses to use us. We're we're the instruments in his hand. It's mind-blowing. His grand mission that started all the way back in the garden and won't be done until we get to paradise. He wants us to be a part of it. He uses us 
in his plan in bringing people to Christ. And notice the word more. As many as possible. So how does Paul maximize his life being used by God for the salvation of others? How does he maximize his life being used by God for the salvation of others? He makes himself a servant. Maximum kingdom impact in our lives starts with emptying ourselves. And next, Paul shows us four specific ways being a servant to all played out in his life. First, it says in verse 20, to the Jews he became a Jew. This is a striking statement. Paul, a Jewish man, states that he became like a Jewish person. It reveals his true sense of identity. Paul never gave up his Jewish heritage. But he no longer looked to it as the defining feature of his life. For Paul, being in Christ was the defining feature of his life. That was his identity over and above all else. However, he was willing to abide by certain cultural practices and customs, not because he had to, but because he chose to in order to reach his fellow Jewish people. And the second area expands on this. Again in verse 20. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. This is talking about the Jewish law. Paul wants to be absolutely clear. He no longer depends on the law for salvation. He does not see it as a requirement for salvation. But at times, he would voluntarily subject subject himself to certain aspects of the law if it meant preserving his witness to his fellow Jewish people. He didn't have to. This is how he would serve the Jewish people, as far as he could, honoring certain aspects of the law, even when it cost him personally. Why? To remove any unnecessary offense or hindrance to them hearing the gospel, that the only offense left was the cross itself. We serve others by removing unnecessary offenses in our lives to the gospel, so that the only offense left is the cross itself. And I'm struck by the fact that Paul was often mistreated by his fellow Jewish people. He was repeatedly kicked out of the synagogues and thrown in prisons. He was screamed at, called names, struck in the face and slandered. He was stoned and and beaten to the brink of death. He was scourged five times with a whip. That's the 39 lashes. And yet he longed for their salvation. He so longed for it. He says in Romans, I so want them to be saved that I would be cut off from Christ if it meant their salvation. He sacrificed. He went out of his way to serve them that they might hear the gospel and see Christ. He didn't wait till they deserved it. Paul truly made himself a servant to all, even to those who were by no means easy to serve. The third specific way this played out in his life is in verse 21. By the way, is this, is this mic a little loud or am I just shouty? Mic is okay? Okay. Okay, thank you. All right. 
to those outside the law, he became as one outside the law. Whereas traditional Jewish customs drew hard lines, Paul removed barriers in his life among Gentiles. He would eat with them and go to their houses because in Christ he was free to do so. He served them by giving up certain things I'm sure he was familiar with or accustomed to from his upbringing. He wasn't used to these things, but he entered their world. Once again, he wants to be very clear. Relating to unbelieving Gentiles doesn't mean he joined their unbelieving lifestyle. Although he lived as one outside the law, that doesn't mean he lived lawlessly. It reminds me of uh, a period of time in my life when I was involved in campus ministry. And every now and again, there would typically be guys who would come up to us and be like, Man, I really feel, feel called to reach out to the fraternities. That's my mission field. And that's good if done with integrity. But sometimes we find out that was just an excuse. It was a front. They were partying just as hard as the rest of them. Listen, Paul wants us to know that is not what it means to become all things to all people. If that were true of you or I, we would not be helping our witness, but severely hindering our witness by showing no difference between their lives and ours. People need to see that the gospel transforms lives. And if someone shared Christ with them, they would be at risk of becoming Christian by name only because that's the Christianity that we would have showed them. And that's not what Paul's advocating here. He would enter into people's world without becoming of their world. He would join them in their meals, in their homes, and in their daily lives, their cares and their concerns, but he would not join them in their sin because he knew that wherever he was and whomever he was with, Christ was still the ruler of his life. And then he shares the fourth specific way he became a servant to all. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak. What does that mean? I don't think it refers to Christians who are weak in conscience. Because it doesn't make sense to talk about winning a Christian to Christ. But elsewhere, in Corinthians, Paul speaks of weakness in terms of enduring hardship. Whether that's the physical hardship of hard work and even deprivation. Or the emotional hardship of being disrespected. And notice one little word that's missing here. The word as. All throughout the previous verses, Paul says, as. I became as one under the law. As one outside the law. As a Jew. Here, he says, I became weak. He, was, he willingly worked hard, spending himself, pouring himself out. And even though he had a slew of credentials and distinctions, he was willing to be disrespected if it meant reaching people. And these are some of the main ways being a servant to all played out in Paul's life. And looking back on all this, we can't take Paul the wrong way. This is not Paul simply playing a part around certain people are being two-faced. No, Paul never pretended to be something he was not. A theologian named Augustine 
who lived in the fourth century, explained it like this. A person who cares for a sick person becomes, in a sense, sick himself. Not by pretending to have a fever, but by thinking sympathetically how he would wish to be treated if he were sick himself. And that's what Paul was doing. Paul related to people. He entered their world. He identified with them as much as he could. And that's a word for you and I. For example, when we come here for the first, when people come here for the first time, we reach out to them. Not by pretending to be visitors ourselves, but by thinking through how we would like to be treated if this were the first time we walked through those doors. Becoming a servant to all leads us to sacrifice some of our time with our regular friends from week to week. I'm not saying we can't have friends. I love my friends here dearly. But becoming a servant to all doesn't cohere with only talking to the same group of people every week. That's becoming few things to few people and robbing ourselves and others of so much more. And you might say, but but honestly, I'm not an outgoing person. But actually some of the most gifted people at entering the world of others are those who just ask genuine questions on that one-on-one level. That's a gift. For all of us, it's about entering the world of others. It's about entering the world of our co-workers and classmates, friends and family. It starts with asking them how they're doing and actually meaning it. Telling them we're praying for them and actually doing it. Knowing their cares and concerns following up with them. It starts with knowing our neighbors by name and knowing their various stories. Something I'm asking God's help for is even when I'm busy, stopping if my neighbors have something to say. One thing a servant is, is available. And I know that realistically we can't be available to everyone all the time. Only God can But are there times when we actually can be available and we're just choosing to be busy with non-eternal things? We could go on and on with this, but there's just one more thing God has put on my heart. Parents, I want to encourage you to enter the world of your children. I'm not saying pretending to be a child, but entering their world. Finding out what makes them tick anew and anew and anew. After a long day of work, when you're tired or when your show is on, serving them by taking time to ask them questions. Aaron Winter and his team are, are doing a great job with the children in this church. If, you're, if your kids are that age, ask them what they're learning. Ask them about their assignments. We're not called to save our kids. Only God can do that. But I pray that God would help us to pave the way spiritually. And this is not just for parents, but for all of us. Being a servant of all includes the next generation. Paul summarizes what could be seen as his motto like this. I have become all things to all people that by all means... 
I might save some. Look at how many times all occurs. Paul gave his all. He looked at his life and removed any and every unnecessary hindrance to the gospel. As far as he could, he identified with all kinds of people from all walks of life. He gave up whatever it took. He held nothing back. He gave his all that as many people as possible might hear the gospel and thereby see Jesus, the Savior and King. And the same is to be true for us. And this could come across as a pretty heavy burden, right? This is a pretty high calling. But if we do this out of a sense of guilt or dry duty, we won't last past the end of the day. So I want to take a moment to see at least two ways this is not meant to be burdensome. Two things that keep us going. That this would not be dry duty. The first is by looking back. When you read Paul's description in, the, in these verses of the way he lived his life, it's like looking at the moon. There's clearly a greater light that stands behind it. It's simply a reflection of Jesus. Jesus is the one who ultimately laid down his life. He let go of heaven and made himself a servant to all. He served his enemies like you and me. He gave his all. He held nothing back. He gave up whatever it took. And it took his life that we might be saved. Jesus is really the ultimate example in this passage. So by the power of the Spirit, the more we live this way, the more we are becoming more like Jesus. And that is what we were made for. To be like Jesus. I have a guitar that's very dear to me. Some of you know about it. I invested in it back before I had like the the financial obligations of adulthood. (laughs) Before Lisa and I met, I used to polish it, like pamper it once a week. And change its strings once a month. But you know what? It could also make a pretty good flower pot. Right? You could put dirt in there, plant some tulips, and voila. Or it it, it could make like a great bat for a t-ball league. Can you imagine? How how could you miss the ball? That'd be pretty great. There's a lot of purposes it could fulfill. But when it's being used for how it was made to be used, that is when it truly sings. There is no greater joy than doing what we were made to do. And for us, it's becoming more like Jesus. That's what we were made to do. That's what makes our hearts, our lives sing. The second way we keep going, the second way this is not burdensome, is found in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul wanted to share the blessings of the gospel with anyone and everyone. It was so good to him. It was so good to him. He could not keep it to himself. Maybe sometimes we struggle to share the good news because it's become old news 
to us. A fresh appreciation of all we have in the gospel, all that flows from our redeemed and right relationship with God, keeps the good news good. And then we will be able, we will no longer be able to keep it to ourselves. It's the overflow of our hearts. We need to daily call to mind just how good it is, how sweet it is to live under the flood of God's grace and love in Christ Jesus, now and forever. As someone once said, the gospel brings you God. Is there anything better than that? These things keep us going as we follow Paul's, as we follow the example seen in Paul's motto. The remaining verses serve as sort of a final charge as we look to Paul's model. And this is found beginning in verse 24. We read, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul's model, as seen in these verses, is that of an athlete. And this would have been especially familiar imagery for the Corinthians. The city of Corinth was the proud home of this huge athletic competition held every other year that rivaled the original Olympic Games called the Isminian Games. I practiced that word this week. The Isminian Games. Paul starts by pointing out the obvious. In a race, all those athletes line up, but only one goes home with the prize. But then he adds something kind of startling. The only command in these verses, so run that you may obtain it. In other words, run to win. Paul is saying, if your life as a Christian witness could be compared to one big, long race, model the athlete who wants to win. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we are all racing against each other, trying to beat each other out. Some super competitive people in the room right now just side to themselves. But Paul actually sees the church standing collectively. The church is that one runner. So that's not the point. The point is to simply raise the question, what does an athlete do who wants to win? And then, of all that Paul could say, he answers that question by zeroing in on just one characteristic. Self-control. An athlete who truly wants to win exercises self-control. One quote puts it like this. For an Olympic athlete, sacrifice is the name of the game. The best athletes in the world show amazing self-control. Top swimmers sleep in low oxygen chambers so that they can build their lungs up. 
Other athletes undergo a certain type of therapy where your entire body is placed in temperatures ranging from negative 115 to negative 180. It's like a common thing. If you want to win at the highest level, you can't eat ice cream either. Your entire life gets reordered. Athletes who want to win are willing to sacrifice. They are willing to give up whatever stands in the way of their overarching goal. Paul says, let that be your attitude towards your witness. And then he puts things into perspective. These athletes go to such great lengths, training night and day, rain or shine for years and years. They reorder their lives. They give up so much. And for what? A perishable wreath. It doesn't last. And I know it's what the wreath represents. But the feeling of winning fades just as fast. I'm not against the Super Bowl. But in a year, it won't matter that the Panthers won today. (laughs) During Paul's day, the, the winner would literally receive a wreath. That's what they got. And historically, we know that at the Isminian Games of Corinth, during this time, the prized wreath was made out of Nothing less than celery. Seriously. This is what it was made out of. This is what you would get. All that sacrifice, everything you gave up, this is what you would get. Celery. I know. That's right. But it makes me think. Are the things of this world we sacrifice for really that much different? Applause. A pat on the back. A raise. A promotion. A feeling. Popularity. Acceptance. Significance. Esteem. The right clothes. The next big gadget. Wealth. Titles. And more. In a thousand years, how much different are they than celery? And it's not that these things are all necessarily wrong. Paul is not bashing the games in themselves. He is saying, if people are willing to give up so much for what immediately fades, how much more should we be willing to sacrifice for what never fades? For what ultimately matters. And in this context, it's about our witness. When we're tempted to get caught up in the things that amount to no more than celery, Paul raises our eyes to what is eternally important. Our witness takes the self-control of an athlete. It takes the reordering of our lives. It does take sacrifice. But it is worth it. 
Returning back to the scene we began with, the day closes and we pack up our things. After all is said and done, and we're headed back home. Would you regret having laid down your life so that people around you could see Jesus? I'm sure we would hear a thousand times over, it's absolutely worth it. The sacrifice does not even compare. This is what we are to do. Following the example of the Apostle Paul, who is simply a reflection of Jesus, the same Jesus who lives within every believer by His Spirit, we are to choose to make ourselves a servant to all, to give our all, to look at our lives and remove any and every unnecessary hindrance to the gospel as far as we can to identify with people, to enter their world, to hold nothing back, to sacrifice like an athlete who wants to win that as many people as possible might hear the gospel and come to Christ. Put simply, We are to lay down our lives that people might see Jesus. And it is absolutely worth it. Let's pray.